The Living Traditions Festival is back Friday, May 17th through Sunday, May 19th at Washington Square Park in downtown Salt Lake City. You will find a global food court, live music, performances, art, workshops, Bohemian Brewery, and stuff for kids. Full disclosure, this is my favorite Salt Lake Festival. For details and to see the full program, visit livingtraditionsfestival.com or find them on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. The governor has nominated a czar to oversee the shrinking Great Salt Lake, and our state is taking bureaucratic steps to amend the crisis. But local activists are interested in something bolder, like giving the lake its day in court. Last fall, I asked Grant Wilson, executive director of the Earth Law Center, how the movement for rights of nature could play out at our namesake. And he offered an interesting new lens for the crisis. It's Tuesday, May 30th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Grant, you've been advocating for rights of nature, which is a form of legal representation for natural elements in the world. Can you tell me what is the origin story for this kind of representation and how does it work? Yes, the rights of nature is a legal movement to establish legal rights for ecosystems, just like humans have legal rights and corporations, for better or worse, have legal rights. (laughs) And in the United States, at least, it's origins are from a case uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court called Sierra Club versus Morton. And in the dissent, Justice Douglas said, in our court, in our system of justice, why is it only humans who are being heard and shouldn't nature, shouldn't rivers and mountains actually be able to um, be part of the justice system? Because they have inherent value. They have what we now call rights of nature. And that was 50 years ago. And there was sort of a pause in the development of this movement uh, until the last 10 years. It's just really taken off. And this idea that nature has personhood, where does this come from? Because it seems unlikely that it was thought of by a Supreme Court justice. Certainly it has inspiration from indigenous peoples around the world, especially the idea that humans have a responsibility or a even mm. a legal duty to protect and restore nature. When you take that idea and apply it into a, a Eurocentric Western law context like the U.S. legal system, it starts to look a little bit like the idea of nature having rights and be, being able to defend itself in courtrooms and enforce those rights in all sorts of other ways. Also, the other inspiration would be people who have look at our current legal system and realize that it's woefully inadequate to solve the environmental challenges we face today. And there's all sorts of reasons for that stemming from the idea that we define nature as property under the law to Hmm. the notion that ecosystems really don't have a voice in our government. So people are sort of looking for ways to reimagine our legal system that can solve the major environmental problems that we face today. Yeah. Well, are there examples of this legal strategy being used successfully in the U.S.? In the United States, the rights of nature movement has mostly been at the local level. And the reason for this is that there are no state governments that support the rights of nature yet, nor does the federal government. And at the local level, some communities have tried to push back against things like 
fracking and industrial agricultural operations using the rights of nature. And it's been challenging because these activities are largely legalized by state and federal governments that literally permit them to occur. And so while we wait for higher levels of government to catch up, uh, local communities have been doing things like recognizing the rights of nature, figuring out how to give nature a voice within their local community, which is something that any town can uh, completely do, and building a movement of support while we wait for these higher levels of government to catch up. And that's something that's especially happened in Rocky Mountain communities. Hmm. Earth Law Center and Save the Colorado, amongst other partners, have been working with towns like Nederland, Ridgeway, and Grand Lake, all in Colorado, to sort of pass these friendlier uh, movement-building type legal instruments on the rights of nature. And that's something that has had some success. It's interesting to me how often in conversations about the Great Salt Lake, which is impending ecological crisis, some would say it's already an ecological crisis in Salt Lake, we talk about the lake often as a person. Like, you know, someone wrote an obituary for the lake and there are poems being dedicated to the lake. And it is becoming sort of prevalent in people's minds. How could this rights of nature concept be applied to the Great Salt Lake? Many ecosystems have long been considered by indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples as being alive or living or having a spirit or personality. And when you think about that in sort of a relationship sense, it makes perfect sense. But when you think about illegally speaking to some people, it's new Mm -hmm. or unfamiliar. But there's lawyers out there, including in the Great Salt Lake region, who really want to figure out legal solutions to basically give the Great Salt Lake, in this case, a voice in government um, because it is alive and it, it, it does have a voice if we listen and we just need to figure out how to make that work legally speaking. So there's a lot of stuff we could do in other countries such as Colombia and New Zealand. There are some rights of nature examples where uh, they have actually appointed legal guardians to serve as the legal voice of ecosystems. In Colombia, there are legal guardians who speak on behalf of the Atrato River. They are its voice. And similarly, in New Zealand with the Wanganui River that has legal guardians, they are the river and they speak for it, very legally speaking. And the same thing could be done for uh, the Great Salt Lake, where you appoint this body of people that serve as the voice of the lake. And that could be in a legal context, you know, in a courtroom. It could be at administrative hearings. It could give comments on issues that affect its health. So that's one thing that could happen. Huh, that's interesting. It's very interesting and exciting. And of course, you start talking about how to give nature a voice and it becomes very complicated who speaks for nature and what are the protections and, and so forth. But I found if you just kind of go for it, you figure a lot of those things out as it happens. Hmm. And then there's other things you could do. Uh, One more example is we all know that the Great Salt Lake needs more water. Mm -hmm. And uh, what if the lake itself could own rights to the amount of water it needs to be healthy? So the rights aren't held by the government or other organizations. The lake itself holds rights to water and enough to restore itself to health and prevent this looming ecological disaster. That's something else that could happen. Whenever posture comes up in conversation, we all do that thing where we immediately sit upright and pull our shoulders back. Did you do it just now? I did a movement session with Chandler at Embodied Patients, and after a few gentle corrections, I was surprised to find sitting up straight is incredibly easy. 
Chandler's practice combines over a decade of study in yoga, Pilates, and the Alexander Technique. So why should you invest in your posture? Let's start with the link between better posture and better breathing. Whether you're returning to activity from an injury, looking to manage pain, or just have the sense things could be a little easier, Chandler will teach you to create sustainable movement habits so that you can enjoy the things you love for longer. Maybe that's running marathons. Maybe it's walking the dog. Visit embodiedpatients.com to book a session with Chandler and give yourself the gift of your own attention. Spring is when leases expire, and if you're looking for a new or better apartment situation, here's the scoop at Ico Fort Union. Fort Union is Ico's newest build in Cottonwood Heights off 1300 East and 6720 South. And as they say in real estate, location, location, location. Ico Fort Union puts you 10 minutes from the mouth of Big Cottonwood Canyon and central to all the Fort Union shops and restaurants. But the complex is located on a dead-end street, so you get peace. Ico Fort Union offers studio, one, two, and three-bedroom apartment homes, plus these very cool three-bedroom work-live apartments. So if you're starting something new, you can live above your business space. Amenities include a pet spa, a spin loft, a bike hub, and EV charging stations. And they are signing leases right now. So visit liveatfortunion.com for a tour. Does the lake have any rights right now? If we think of it as a person, it has its own sovereignty. But in terms of like a, in a courtroom right now. The lake has no rights in a courtroom right now. You know, all of nature is treated as property under the law. Humans can own it and buy it and sell it and exploit it. And actually corporations are legally required to maximize their profits such that they buy and sell and exploit nature as much as they possibly can to do so. And a lake, a river, a mountain, a forest in the U.S., with a few exceptions of places that do recognize the rights of nature in, in U.S. communities and as, as well with sovereign tribal nations, with those exceptions, they have no rights at all. They're property under the law. They're a thing. And, you know, that means its voice isn't heard and there's just only so much we can do to protect it. Yeah. And I really think this mindset of, you know, the lake is a thing, we own it, it's our resource, uh, as much as anything is part of the problem. What are some of the pitfalls or potential setbacks of a rights of nature legal strategy? Yeah, a few of the pitfalls of a rights of nature legal strategy are one, enforcement is going to be challenging until there's state and federal support. So let's mm -hmm. say the Great Salt Lake has rights and local communities recognize this however they see fit and you want to enforce those against a proposed dam, let's say. Uh, that's going to be very challenging until maybe the state of Utah supports the right of local communities to pass rights of nature laws or itself recognizes the rights of nature mm -hmm. or if there's some level of federal support. So the enforcement part can be challenging, which is why in the United States, sort of the strategy has shifted from not saying no to, you know, proposed projects, kind of this negative approach, but saying yes to rallying around the rights of nature, giving nature a voice and sort of creating this cultural shift uh, along with yeah. uh, building a legal framework. So that's one challenge that can be overcome. You know, I think another challenge is um, reaching people who might be skeptical of the movement and convincing them it's a good thing. Some people think that the rights of nature is really anti-human and anti-property rights, but 
neither of those things are true. The rights of nature is really pro-human because it situates humans as being part of this larger ecosystem. So rights of nature is really about humans as well because we are part of nature. And I think once people understand that and realize this is about ensuring healthy ecosystems in which we live, we are part of nature, there are rights too, um, that you start to see more support. But certainly there's some skepticism at first in some places. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of movement building needs to happen to get this from a concept to basically the courtroom. For sure. And anytime you talk about rights for a new entity, you know, it really impacts everybody. And if you, you know, surprise a community with the rights of nature law and they've never heard of it, its impact is going to be extremely limited. So I think part of the exciting thing about the movement actually and the, the best use of it, at least in its early stages, is to start a community conversation about how do we treat nature? What would it mean for it to have rights? How can we speak for nature? And I think this is just a really deep dialogue and important one for any community to have. And I think for the Great Salt Lake, certainly there'd be a lot of interesting outcomes from that conversation. A question that often comes up around the crisis at the Great Salt Lake in Utah and around so many crises in Utah is, do we have the political will? How can advocates sell our very conservative legislature on the idea that the lake deserves its day in court? Any advice? Sure. It can certainly be challenging, although uh, you'd be surprised about who supports the movement. And there have been some very conservative communities in the United States that have looked to the rights of nature for help when traditional environmental laws have failed them because they see impacts to the communities they care about and, and feel like there's not enough tools to to solve them. You know, for Utah, I think focusing on this, you know, vision of, you know, what does the lake want? What is the lake saying? How can we listen to it is something that maybe anyone can get behind before you dive into all of the intricacies of, of rights. Uh, once you dive into rights, I think you can overcome these challenges as well. You know, just looking at the last year, there's been this flood of legislation coming out in support of the Great Salt Lake, things like changing water rights. And it's really hard to mess with water rights without getting people really riled up. And Utah did it last year, uh, basically allowing water rights to be held by representatives on behalf of the lake uh, without people losing water rights that they don't use any given season. Hmm. And these sorts of changes are can be politically really hard and actually give me hope that the politicians in Utah are open to creative new solutions to this impending ecological crisis. And even if it's something like rights of nature that they've never heard of, I think people see the state of the environment, see the shortcomings of environmental laws and are at least open to a conversation about these issues. And, uh, you know, everyone in Utah really cares about the environment there. They, they live in this amazing, beautiful place. And the politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or independent, are people who have families and legacies and care about future generations there. And so I think you'd be surprised how receptive people will be to the conversation. Grant Wilson, thank you so much. This idea is so fascinating to me, and I really appreciate your time breaking it down. Thank you for having me. All right, I've got good news and bad news for you, friends. First, the good. Our snowy winter and spring runoff has caused the Great Salt Lake to rise by about five feet. Hell yes. But here's the shadow side. 
We still need the lake to rise by another six feet to mitigate the worst impacts of the crisis. And that means that we are still breathing toxic dust from the lake bed in this valley. A University of Utah scientist told the Salt Lake Tribune's Leah Larson that it doesn't matter which way the winds are blowing, someone somewhere is being impacted by dust from the Great Salt Lake. And that means we still have a lot of work to do. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. I know every single podcast you listen to asks you to rate and review, but the reason is because it makes a huge difference for us. It helps other people decide to give our show a try. So please take a minute today, leave us a rating or a review. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.